Welcome to Grace Point Church Podcast. We proclaim Christ crucified and uphold him as the only hope for the fallen world. Welcome back to our GG reading. This is Christ's Call to Discipleship by James Montgomery Boyce. Today, we are looking at chapter 7, uh, that is page 87 to 100. And the topic for today is traveling light, traveling light. James begins by quoting from Mark 6, 8 to 11. Let me read it for us. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust of your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. Mark 6, 8 to 11. Hear how James begins. Now, I received a letter from a couple going to the mission field for the first time. They listed their financial requirements, so much for support, medical expenses, insurance, pension, the cost of operating an automobile, travel to and from the field, overhead for the home office, and so on. I was not disturbed by the letter. I was actually quite sympathetic. I knew that the requests were reasonable. Still, I could not help contrasting their letter with the Lord's commands to the disciples when they set out on their first missionary journey. He told them to go without possessions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. Again, quoting Mark 6, 8 to 11. This list of instructions highlights the uneasy alliance most Christians have with their possessions. We admire St. Francis of Assisi, who stripped himself of everything and went off singing into the forest. But we do not follow his example. On the contrary, we spend most of our lives making money. And if we are honest, we admit that for the most part, we do not make money in order to have more to help others. We make it to spend it on ourselves. We are disturbed by Christ saying, Any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. As you see in Luke fourteen thirty-three. So as we begin, we look at a subtopic here, wealth and poverty. Now part of the problem comes from what seems on the surface to be contradictory statements in scripture. In the first quoted, when Jesus sends his disciples off on their journey, he tells them, take nothing. But at the last supper, he referred to that earlier incident saying, when I sent you uh, without pass, bags or sandals, did you lack nothing? And when they said no, he continued, But now, if you have a pass, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, well, sell your cloak and buy one, as you see in Luke 22, 35-36. When the rich young ruler approached Jesus, asking, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answered, Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony. Do not defraud, honor your father and mother. 
The young man said he had kept all those commandments since he was a boy. Jesus responded, One thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me, as we see in Mark 10, 17 to 21. Now, this clearly indicated that the young man's wealth was keeping him from salvation. In order to be saved, it was necessary for him to sell his possessions and give all he had to the poor. But Jesus did not make this command of Peter or James or John or countless others. He made it of a rich young man whose riches were, in his case, a barrier to salvation. Even Ananias and Sapphira were not judged for failing to give up their possessions, but for lying about what they did, pretending to have given all when actually they were keeping part. When Peter asked Ananias, Didn't it, that is the land, belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? As you see in Acts 5, verse 4, he was actually establishing the right of private property. Many Psalms suggest that material blessing is the rightful expectation of the devout man. We read in Psalms 17, verse 4, you still, you still the hunger of those you cherish. Their sons have plenty, and they store up wealth for their children. Who then is the man who Who fears the Lord, he will instruct him in the way chosen for him. He will spend his days in prosperity, as you see in Psalms 25, 12 to 13. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever, as you see in Psalms 112, verse 1 and verse 3. Or continuing in Psalms 114, verse 13, our bonds will be filled with every kind of provision. Our sheep will increase by thousands, by tens of thousands in our fields. On the other hand, though, the Bible is filled with warnings against riches. J.C. Ryle, the evangelical English bishop of an earlier generation, put it like this, quoting from Ryle, Is it for nothing that the Lord Jesus spoke the parable of the rich fool and blamed him because he was not rich towards God? As you see in Luke 12, 21. Is it for nothing that in the parable of the sower, he mentions the deceitfulness of riches? As one of the reasons why the seed of the word bears no fruit, as you see in Matthew 13, 22. Is it for nothing that he says, make to yourself friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, as you see in Luke 6, verse 9. Is it for nothing that he says, when thou makest a dinner or a supper, Call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor the rich neighbors, lest they also beat thee again, and a recompense be made to thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee. For thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just, as you see in Luke 14. 12 to 14. Is it for nothing that he says, Sell that ye have and give alms. Provide yourself bags which wax not old, or a treasure in heaven that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. As we see in Luke 12, 33. Is it for nothing that he says, It is more blessed to give than to receive. As we see in Acts 
35. Is it for nothing that he warns us against the example of the priest and the Levite who saw the wounded traveler but passed by on the other side? Is it for nothing that he praises the good Samaritan who denied himself to show kindness to a stranger? As you see in Luke 10, verse 13. Is it for that nothing that St. Paul classes covetousness with sins of the grossest description and denounces it as idolatry, as you see in Colossians 3, verse 5? And is there not a striking and painful difference between his language and the habits and the feeling of society about money? And of quote from J.C. Riles. Now, on the other surface, at least, some of these statements seem to contradict each other. However, the, move, uh, the more we study them, the more we are convinced that the problem is not in the text, but in ourselves. It is in our attitude to riches. Our attitude keeps us from handling wealth as God would have us handle it. A.W. Tozer, in a chapter called The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing, points out that before the Lord God made man upon the earth, he first prepared for him by creating a world of useful and pleasant things for his sustenance and delight. But he adds correctly, sin has introduced complications and has made those very gifts of God a potential source of ruin to the soul. A friend of mine put it this way, he says that we all have desires and that there's nothing wrong with desires in themselves. The problem is that we have infinite desires. We always want more. And since only God is infinite, it follows that we can never be satisfied with anything but God alone. Augustine said, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee as you see in the confessions. When we try to fill our lives with things, we commit idolatry, we misuse our possessions, we harm others, and we condemn ourselves to frustration and eternal loss. As we continue, another subheading here, all good gifts from God. All good gifts, gifts from God. Now, while we should go to get a proper perspective uh, sorry, where should we go to get a proper perspective on riches? Where can we learn to relate our possessions to our discipleship? Negatively, there is much to be said about things, but the place to begin is not with a negative, but with a positive. All things come from God. God is the creator. Therefore, possessions are to be received from him with thanksgiving and are to be enjoyed fully as he intended them to be enjoyed. James wrote, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father, from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows, as you see in James 1, 17. There is therefore a false idea in some forms of Christianity that things somehow are evil, and that the only way to live a truly spiritual life is to part with them. It may be true, of course, as in the case of the rich young man, that the only way a given individual can find salvation is by repudiating the wealth that keeps him from discipleship. But that is not because things in themselves are evil. That view was present in the ancient world, but was repudiated by Christianity. 
that view was dualism. It is said that there are two spheres of reality, the sphere of the mind or the spirit, which is good, and the sphere of things or matter, which is evil. By nature, men and women are amalgamations. They possess a mind, which relates them to God and draws them upward, and then a body, which is evil and draws them downwards. Now, the only way to be saved, then, is to escape from the body. In life, this is done by living in the realm of the mind and denying physical pleasures. In the Greek world, dualism produced the distinct formulations of its great philosophers. In the Christian world, dualism produced monasticism. Christianity does not teach dualism. According to the Bible, all that we see and know was created by God, and in its original form, that is, before the fall and the distortions that came from it, it was pronounced utterly good by Him. Our bodies are from God. They are good. Our minds are from God. They too are good. The fruit of the field is good. The fruit of our labor, seen in homes and buildings and manufactured goods and social services and writing and art, is good. God has given us fields, hills, mountains, seas, storms, sunrises, and sunsets, all richly to enjoy. But there is this to be said. First, it is God who has given these things. And because God is sovereign in his giving, as in everything else, it follows that he may, and in fact does, give some more than others. And that is also good and just. That is the Christian answer to egalitarianism, the idea that all people must be equal in riches, and that if they are not, it is the job of the government or some other outside agency to distribute them. This is not the government's job. The government is established by God to promote and enforce justice, as you see in Romans 13, 1-5. If one individual grows rich by extorting goods from others, by fraud or by actions that deny or destroy basic human values and rights, then it is the government's job to expose the evil, to punish the injustice, and to demand restitution. The government must not take what belongs to one individual if it is lawfully acquired and give it to another. That is in itself an injustice. Um, there is nothing in the nature or scripture to say that all persons must possess an equal share of this world's goods. And in fact, it is evident that even God does not so distribute his good gifts. One servant will always have five talents, another two, and a third, just one. Second, because the things we possess, we are given by, uh, by our, sorry, so because, second, because the things we possess are given to us by God, it follows that we are accountable to him for how we use them. This is what the parable of the talents is all about. God distributes his gifts unequally. One servant has five talents, another two, a third one, just one. But each is nevertheless equally responsible for the proper use of what he has been given. The man who is judged by Christ is judged, not because he had one talent rather than two or five, but because he did not properly use that one talent that he had. So we will be if we fail to use God's gifts properly. Another subtitle here, A Christian Perspective. So I come back to my original question and I ask again, 
What should a disciple's attitude to his possessions be? We have seen that he may have great possessions or few. He may be required to give up his possessions if he is to follow Christ, though this is not usually the case. But assuming that the disciple of Christ possesses some things, whether many or few, how should he regard them and what place should they have in his life? I suggest the following principles. The first one is thanksgiving. First, Timothy 4.4 says, Everything good, uh, sorry, everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving. A Christian perspective starts at this point. God desires to give. In fact, God desires to give lavishly. He has already given lavishly and there is a sense in which he will continue to give lavishly to his own people throughout eternity. It is true that at times God also takes away, but that is for the same reason that he more frequently gives, namely because he loves us. If something is standing in the way of our spiritual growth or usefulness, God will remove it. But that aside, God's main relationship to us is that of an abundant giver. We cannot exist without his benevolence. God gives life and health, sun and rain, friends and families, opportunities to learn and serve and worship, indeed, all things. So our first proper response to this must be thanksgiving. This implies two things. First, humility. If all we have is from God, then we must be humble about it and not boast of our possessions as if we had somehow achieved them without God. Paul makes this important point in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? To boast is the opposite of being thankful. Second is contentment. Elizabeth Elliot writes, quoting from Elizabeth Elliot on contentment, Thanksgiving requires the recognition of the source. It implies contentment with what is given, not complain about what is not given. It excludes conversiousness. The goodness and love of God choose the gifts, and we say thank you, acknowledging the thought behind as well as the thing itself. Conversiousness involves suspicion about the goodness and love of God and even his justice. He has not given me what he has given somebody else. He doesn't notice my need. He doesn't love me as much as he loves him. He isn't fair. Faith looks up with open hands. You are giving me this, Lord. Thank you. It is good and acceptable and perfect. End of quote. Now, if we are not content, we are not thankful. The Apostle Paul called godliness with contentment great gain, as we see in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. The second one is perspective. The second important element in a disciple's attitude toward his possessions is perspective. Although it is true that all things are given to us by God and are grounds for thanksgiving, material possessions are nevertheless not the only things God gives or even the most important things. If we fail to see this, as often we do to see, fail to see it, what is good in itself can become harmful. In the rare jail 
of Christian contentment, Jeremiah Burroughs speaks of a fourfold burden in a prosperous condition, a burden of trouble, a burden of danger, a burden of duty, and a burden of accountability. Of these four, the burden he chiefly focuses on is danger. He says that men in prosperous possession are subject to many temptations that other men are not subject to. Therefore, a poor man who is in a low condition thinks, I am low and others are raised, but I know what their burden is. And so, if he is rightly instructed in the school of Christ, he comes to be contented. We have an excellent example of danger of wealth in Christ's story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man did not perish because he had possessions. Not a word in the story condemns him for his wealth. Nevertheless, we cannot escape seeing that there was some connection between his wealth and his neglect of those matters of mind and heart that would have had to lead to salvation. He was rich in things but poor in soul. And it was his prosperity in the former that blinded him to his poverty in the latter, which mattered ultimately. This is the great danger of riches, namely the desire to gain the world at the loss of one's salvation. For this reason, Hugh Latimer began one of his sermons before King Edward VII by quoting three times, Take heed and beware of covetousness. He then added, What if I should say nothing else these three or four hours? The Church of England prayer book developed about that time says, In all time of our wealth, good Lord, deliver us. Possessions are dangerous because we tend to serve them rather than God, which means that things become an idol and our service of them becomes idolatry. Jesus taught his, uh, this when he said in the Sermon on the Mountain, You cannot serve both God and money. Matthew 6, 24. In the Greek New Testament, the word Jesus used for money is mammon, which is translated as mammon. It has an interesting history. Mammon comes from a Hebrew root meaning to entrust or to praise in someone's keeping. Mammon therefore meant the wealth that one entrusted to another. At this time, mammon did not have any bad connotation. A rabbi could say, let the mammon of thy neighbor be as dear to thee as thy own. If a bad sense was intended, an adjective or some other qualifying word needed to be added, as in the mammon of unrighteousness. However, as time passed, the meaning of the word shifted from the passive voice, that is, which is entrusted, to the active, that in which one trusts. And the concept became bad. Now the word which was originally spelled with a small m uh, came in English text to be smelled with a capital M as designating a god. The new international version captures the idea by translating mammon as money in capital letter. This is what often happens with those who possess great riches. They may begin with a sense of having received their possessions from God, but instead of entrusting them to him for safekeeping, they come instead to trust riches and thus idolatrize them. No one can do that and be Christ's disciples. The third one is stewardship. 
Now, central to any biblical understanding of possessions is the concept of stewardship, the principle that possessions are not ours to do with as we want, but rather that that which we has, has been entrusted to us by God is to do what he wants to be used in his service. It is the principle behind Christ's story of the landlord who went off on a trip and left his vineyard in the care of tenant farmers, or the story of the master who entrusted certain talents to his servants. It is what Paul was talking about when he wrote to young Timothy, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for enjoyment. Command them, he says, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. We see this in 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. Now, the key idea here is that other treasure is perishable. Frequently, it fails to last even in this sphere. It certainly will not go with us into heaven. So what are we to use it for? The answer is that we are to use possessions to do good so that those good deeds will themselves produce treasures for us, not on earth, but in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. People have natural desire to lay up treasure in the sense of having what will last. That is not bad, but that kind of treasure can only be bad in heaven, can be only be hard in heaven, and even then, only if we use our possessions here properly. I put the matter as clearly as I know how. The money you spend on yourself, which is necessary up to a point, will not produce treasure in heaven. It will be gone with the spending, and its benefits will perish when you do. But money you spend on others, which should be a rising percentage of your income, as God prospers you, that treasure will last forever. It will be translated into eternal treasure to be presented to you at the Lord's coming. Let me say it again, this time in language used by Dentrick Bonhoeffer. Other goods are given to be used, not to be collected. Wealth that is stored up will not, like, will not rot like yesterday's manna. Wealth that is given is like seed sown. It will produce abundant crop for God's harvest. We finish here with a final subtopic, a heart set free. A heart set free. Now I close with an important thought here. Wealth is a blessing when properly received and used. But there's something far more important than wealth or even the proper use of it. It is being free, as God intended us to be free. Possessions tie us down. Therefore, although most of us must have at least some possessions, and many of us will have a great deal, the only way to be really free is to hold those possessions as if we hold them, uh, as if we do not hold them, and thus be ready to always let go of them at any moment's notice. I am impressed with the way A.W. Tozer develops this from the story of Abraham's sacrifice of his son Isaac in obedience to God's commandment. As Toza tells it, Isaac was the idol of the aged patriarch's heart. He was the son of a miracle, representing God's covenant, Abraham's personal hope of salvation. 
the promise of the Messiah, and much else besides. Toza says, as he watched him grow from babyhood to young manhood, the heart of the old man was knit closer and closer with the life of his son, till at last the relationship bordered upon the paradise. It was then that God stepped in to save both father and son from the consequences of an uncleansed love. God told Abraham to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah. What agony the command must have been for Abraham. It was an agony of understanding. How could God require him to sacrifice the one through whom he had promised to send the Messiah? How could God keep his promises if Isaac was dead? It was also an agony of obedience. How could Abraham go through with it? How could he kill his son? Abraham must have wished that it could be himself than Isaac who would die. His death would not be hard. He was old and his death would be cheered by the last dim sight of Isaac, who was to carry on his line. But no, the command of God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the region of Moria. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you, as you see in Genesis 22, verse 2. Abraham must have struggled long and hard with the command, but he did not fail God's test. He cut the wood, he saddled the donkey, he made the journey, he built the altar, and he raised the knife to slay Isaac. It was only at the last moment that the angel of the Lord intervened to stop the sacrifice and commend Abraham because he did not withhold even so great a possession as a son when God demanded him. At this point, uh, A.W. Tozer pictures Abraham standing on the mountain, strong and pure and grand, a man wholly surrendered to God, a man who had given God everything and who therefore possessed nothing. Nothing? Yes, nothing. Yet Abraham was still rich. Everything he had owned before was still his to enjoy. Ships, camels, herds, goods of every sort. He had also his wife and his friends. And best of all, he had his son Isaac, safe by his side. He had everything, but he possessed nothing. Abraham possessed nothing because he had first been possessed by God. He was the Lord's and therefore everything he had sat loosely on him. Toza calls this a spiritual secret that the books of theology do not teach but the wise understand. The reason God requires the renunciation of things is that the miser in each of us must be destroyed if we are truly to follow him. His roots must be torn from the soil. Like the money changes in the temple, he must be driven out. Such action is painful, but when it has been performed, then we can begin to be useful. We can serve others by using things other than being used by them. We can travel light in Jesus' service. That is the end of our reading today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Gracepoint Church Podcast. For more information and for past episodes, please check our website, Gracepoint Church. 